gets me to take a seat. Well, welcome. So uh, we, are, we are like smack dab in the middle of our series called Faith is Blank. Basically, what we've been doing over the summer is at the start of the summer, and it's on display. I think it's out there. Bobby, where is that? Is it on the table? Yeah. Okay. You can see the very piece of artwork that we're using for this entire series. What we did was all I asked you all to come up with what you believed faith was, or like a word or a sentence or a phrase. Like, what is faith to you? And then we all pinned them on a lovely piece of art that, wow, that Bobby did. Um, and uh, from that, I've literally just been pulling like these topics, and you guys have basically steered the ship for the entire series uh, into what we're doing in the summer. And so uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about faith is prayer. And actually, the better title for this uh, is the silly love of God. And silly is a really fun word to say and childish, so I'm going to have a lot of fun saying it over and over and over again this morning. Um, but before we jump into anything, I want to give some space uh, for us to pray. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. I'm just going to kind of give like 10 seconds of just silence as we can listen, we can just adjust, and then I'll start speaking. And then once I'm done, I'll talk for another like 20 minutes. So buckle up. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, I'm uh, just so thrilled to be talking about um, prayer. And uh, Lord, as we, as we go through several stories that you have laid out for us and several stories uh, that have happened in my life, I pray that you would breathe into all of this and that we would know just a little bit more about you this morning. Amen. Amen. Um, so, uh, I was in high school and uh, I'm in history class. This is my sophomore year. My teacher's name is Mr. Baker, and we called him Square Bear Baker. <laughs> he was a lovely man, uh, but terribly, terribly boring. Like, his classes were just known. To, he had this very monotone voice, and it was almost soothing in a way, and you would just kind of, like, want to drift off uh, to sleep, which many of us did, especially if you sat on the back, especially where I was sitting. Um, so there's this guy. I'm not going to name him, um, but he was, like, kind of the school bully. So we'll just call him Bully. And he was rarely in class, but this day he came to class, and he came to class just very dishuffled. He didn't even bring like a pen or anything. It's just him. He plops down, probably because he was caught by the vice principal trying to leave the school. And he's been placed in this seat, and he's right next to me. And uh, Mr. Baker goes into just one of his classic tirades in which like the whole class is just like, where is this going? He's talking about an oligarchy. And so it's just all these terms that are like, oh my gosh. And he must have said oligarchy like 15 times. Meanwhile. Bully to my right uh, is doing the classic nod off. And he's a big man, right? So just picture this sophomore, but like the kind of sophomore that shouldn't be a sophomore. Like he should have graduated five years ago. He's just a huge, colossal man. And he's sitting in this desk and he keeps going like this. He just like, he'll like be looking and then you see the eyes like start to go. And then he would kind of like go, you know, like the classic nod. And it's getting to the point that like I'm starting to chuckle because every time he like gets up, it's like this, like he shakes the desk and it's really loud. So he's like, and you hear this loud noise. And so I'm beginning to laugh just a little bit every time. This goes on through this whole oligarchy uh, message that Mr. Baker is giving. And finally, like, it gets to the point where he just all the way falls asleep. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is hilarious. And I'm trying not to laugh. Because again, this is a school bully. So I get myself smacked if I'm like too you know, um, silly with him. But all of a sudden, Mr. Baker says oligarchy. The minute he says oligarchy, the bully pops his head up, grabs me on the arm, and he's like, is he talking about the Olive Garden? 
And that was it for me. I was complete. Everything I tried to hold in. There's this huge man, like who just mentioned Olive Garden when an oligarchy had said, and I just lose it. And I'm like laughing so hard. Like, and this is not like a laugh with you scenario. I'm laughing directly at this individual, and it pains me because I know, like, I'm totally gonna get beat up after this. But I'm laughing so uncontrollably hard at this Olive Garden statement that my friend next to me, he starts to laugh. And meanwhile, Square Bear Baker is trying to keep things on track, and he, he tries to settle us down. But at this point, it's just one of those, those fits of laughter that you just can't stop. And I just, like, I'm rolling laughing. And Mr. Baker says, Josh, do you need to leave the classroom? And I'm like, absolutely, I do. And so I get kicked out of the classroom with the bully. Literally, like, it's good. He laughed about the Olive Garden thing. We all had a great time. I bring that up uh, to describe just this, this concept of silly, right? Silly is one of the best terms, and we don't use it enough. It's something we use for like children, or if you're like childish, but like silly is the greatest attitude in the world. It is so much fun. If you've ever been on one of those laughing fits that you just can't stop, you don't want to stop. It's joy that's just pouring out of you, and it's a great, great time. See, when you're silly, you, can't, you stand out. Like, it's not going to be hidden. It's going to be loud. It's going to be obnoxious. It's going to be ridiculous looking. And that is the love of God. The love of God is the type of thing that can get you kicked out of the classroom. <laughs> love of God loves to laugh at Olive Garden, right? It's an amazing, silly love. And I want to go through a story that Jesus told uh, that isn't a silly story, but one of the, one of the characters in the story certainly is. Um, and it's the story of the prodigal son. It's the story that you might have heard a thousand times. It's a story we've definitely done here like at least a hundred times. But what's beautiful about this story is each time we dive into it, there's something new to pay attention to. There's some new thing that God is working in. And this morning, I want us to pay attention to a couple things. Uh, one, that the father runs. And two, that there's a robe. Just hold on to the robe idea because that's going to be a constant theme uh, throughout. But basically, the story of the prodigal son is... Uh, there's two sons and a father. Those are the named characters in the story. And one of the sons decides, you know what? I've had it here. I don't like my life here. I don't like my family. I want to go do my own thing. And so he goes to his father and he says, Dad, give me my inheritance, which to us is like just a bold move anyway. But in that ancient context, that was basically like going up to his father and saying like, hey, Dad, I really wish you weren't alive. Like, I wish that like, you would die so that I could have my inheritance and live my own way. I'm tired I'm living under your authority, and I want to go off and do my own thing. And miraculously and weirdly, in a turn of events, the father lets him have what he wants. So he gives him half of his inheritance. Can you imagine, like, as a father, as a parent, like, actually dealing with that? Like, one, your, your kid just came up to you and said, I wish you were dead. And then, two, you're going to give them what they want anyway. It's silly, right? That is silly. So the younger son goes off. And he goes off to sort of like one of the wildest cities in the world. He lives like super wildly. And he's, you know, he's partying and he's doing all sorts of stuff. And he's, he spends, he blows through all of his inheritance, all of his money. And he gets into this awful, awful spot where he has this like part-time job where he's feeding pigs. Oftentimes in scripture, like they'll mention a shepherd. And a shepherd is a very lowly position. The reason it's so lowly, in fact, is you're outside all day with these sheep. And when you would walk back into town, they would know you're a shepherd simply because of the way that you smelled. Like they go, oh God, there comes the shepherd, right? Pigs are worse than that. Pigs are a symbol for wallowing around in the filth. So things have gotten so bad that he's feeding pigs just to make ends meet. 
And he's so hungry that he begins to look at the pods that he's feeding these pigs, going like, I wish I could eat that. But his boss is like, you don't even get that. Right? So things are terrible. And he finally comes to his senses, and he goes, hey, wait a minute. My father has a ton of servants. Right? We have a really big family farm, and we've got tons of hired hands, and they have tons of food to spare. What I'm going to do, I'm going to swallow my pride, and I'm going to go back to my father and ask him for a job. In fact, he says it like this. This is the scripture we'll read this morning. It starts in verse 18. He says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, and this is sort of him rehearsing his speech or his deal that he's going to make with his dad. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And I want us to like pay attention to this part really, really hard. He went to his father. Uh, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled for compassion with him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Now, this is his practice speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And so they began to celebrate. Right after this, when they throw this massive party for the son that was dead and is now alive, it's like this huge, exuberant, awesome thing. There's another brother, the other brother, who we haven't heard from this entire story, that basically goes to his dad and he's like, I don't get it. Like, that's, that's the guy that basically wished death upon you and took most of our money and just squandered it. I've been here the whole time doing the right thing, and never once have you thrown me a party. And the father, just in like the coolest line ever, it does not help the son whatsoever, but he just sort of Jedi's him, and he goes like, no, 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 you don't get it. Like, you've been here the whole time, and literally all I have is yours. Your inheritance, it's a Lion King moment, everything the light touches, <laughs> right? My inher your inheritance is all here, Everything I have has been yours the entire time. But the son just can't get around the fact that he's thrown his younger brother a party, and so he leaves. He never joins in on the party. There's a couple things that I want to unpack here. Number one, the running towards him. That's a beautiful image, right? So he sees him from a long way off, and he's still rehearsing his speech. He's like, oh, help me, please, Father, take me back. And Father sees him, and he comes bounding towards him. And this is why it's silly, right? This is the silly love of God. If you are of high stature, like this person probably was, like this father was, this is the God figure in this story. And if you're the patriarch of the family, and they, they've named it, like they have servants, you're going to be used to going like, you go pick that up, you go do that, just pointing and things are happening, right? There is never an instance where this guy would be caught running towards something. It would just be downright ridiculous, just bounding down a field. Here comes dad, probably hasn't run in like 15 years, and he's charging towards you with reckless abandon. It's silly. I think that's just such a beautiful picture of God's love for us. I swear we're going to talk about prayer, by the way. We're getting to that. <laughs> but it's just a beautiful, gorgeous picture of God's love for us. The other thing I want to focus on, and I mentioned the robe, I got to thinking, there's like three things that he's handed. 
And if there's specifics in scripture, we should always look at that and always try and figure out what's going on there. So first he says, put a ring on his finger. And that's a symbol for like everlasting eternal love because it never stops, right? So there's a symbol there. That one makes sense. And then he says, put sandals on his feet because this man has just journeyed. So that's a symbol. It's like a metaphor for the ending of his long journey. You are home. But then I was like, why the robe, right? Was he unclothed before that? Or his clothes just like, I mean, he was hanging around with pigs. That kind of makes sense. But why do they mention a robe specifically? Bring the best robe and throw it around him. So I began trying to figure out what that meant. And it turns out that Jesus loves a good robe. (laughs) He talks about a robe a lot. Uh, This story in particular, this is the story um, of the great banquet. And if you've heard this story, it's it's really similar to the prodigal son. There's a father. He's throwing a party. This time it's a wedding. And no one's like squandered their wealth and come back. Uh, Father's not running in this one. But he's throwing a wedding for his son. And he decides, like, I'm gonna, okay, let's go invite all of our friends, all of our noble, high-standing friends. He's a king and a father. So this is a king throwing a wedding. So he's going to go out to all the noble people and say, like, hey, come be a part of this party. And all of the noble people in this story have first-world problems, and they can't come to the party. Basically, they're like, no, i got to fix my car. We just bought a new house. Uh, I just I have to tend to my field. There are all of these, these excuses of, like, wealth and power to not come to this wedding banquet, to not come to this beautiful feast that the king has provided. So in an awesome flip, the way that Jesus usually does, he takes the party to the neighborhood. And he says, go to every street corner, go to like everyone who's living on the street and tell them there's a wedding and that they're invited. Because they're going to accept the invitation. It's a symbol for how the people on the outside are going to understand God's grace a little bit better than the people on the inside. They're going to instantly understand and get that. And this story is very confusing, mostly because it's written twice in the Bible, one in the book of Matthew and one in the book of Luke. And the book of Luke is this flowery, beautiful, gorgeous description of like, we're going to bring the party to you and welcome in and oh yeah, like all hugs and warm and fuzzies and all that good stuff. And then the one in, uh, the one in Matthew is very, very interesting because it involves murder <laughs> and someone getting tied up and thrown out of this party. So naturally it resonates. I want to go for the crazy one. Let's talk about why people are murdered and tied up. Um, this is the exact uh, scripture that this comes out of. It says, uh, this then, oh, I'm sorry. That's how Jesus asked to pray. <laughs> We're getting to that. It says, then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall, this giant hall, was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. This is really important. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, my friend? The man was speechless. This is where the king takes a dark turn. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's kind of harsh, right? We go from like wonderful flowery wedding banquet where everyone's invited to all of a sudden this one guest just getting the boot in like one of the most embarrassing ways possible. Why? Is God so hung up on the rules or is God so hung up on a dress code that this, this... guest is being ejected from the party? But it turns out it's not really 
about the dress code at all. It's actually about a refusal to accept a good gift that has been given. If you went to an ancient wedding, especially for if a king is throwing it, this is going to be like one of the craziest weddings and parties you're ever going to go to in your life. And to get an invitation to this party when you were living on the street would have been like, are you serious? I get to go into that great hall and I get to sit down and I get to feast and we get to party. These Jewish weddings would last almost a week long. And so as a gracious gift and, and a, like a, a showing of hospitality, as you walked into one of these parties, you would be given a robe or a garment that would get you through that week. So everyone would wear the same thing. As I looked into this, these robes, these garments, every time they pop up in scripture, they're clothing someone who before had nothing and now they've entered in to a great party. Before, they were empty and now they've been given righteousness. So the, the symbol behind the robe, behind the garment, is one of righteousness. As soon as you step in, you are clothed in righteousness. And this particular guest, this is literally what would happen. And we saw it in the prodigal son. Son runs up, and before he can get even a word out of his mouth, the dad's like, bring the robe. And he puts the robe on him, right? Because it's a symbol of righteousness. You're home now. And in this story, as you walked into a wedding, it wouldn't just be like, here, here's your robe, here's your garment. You would literally be placed into the robe. The robe would be put on your shoulders to signify welcome in this place. You're righteous. We're all equals here. We're all on the same page. And this guest literally gets the robe, this righteous gift, this awesome, beautiful gift, and he takes it off. And in, like, picture just Game of Thrones era rage here. Like, that's extremely, extremely insulting to the king. Here you are, you're at my party, and you've refused to just participate in the beautiful gift that I've given you. So I'm going to have to do something really embarrassing and check you out, right? The silly love of God is the fact that he goes out into the neighborhood and pulls all those people in. And it's a gift, guys, and we can graciously walk through there, but we can also choose not to wear the robe. Just because we don't believe it could be this good. Like, all these people can't make the cut. I've been living my life righteous, I'm taking this robe off. I'm going to be different. And that's not what God is calling us to. So, prayer. Why am I rambling on like this? We have a picture of a father in two different stories. And in scripture, these stories are told before the disciples ever ask how to pray. So the disciples are following this guy, Jesus, around, and then they ask this really earnest question. They say, Jesus, how should we pray? Because we've seen you go off into the wilderness. We've seen you, like, go off and you'll spend hours alone in prayer. What's our template? Like, what do we do? How do we pray differently than before? Because this kingdom business and this whole new upside-down reality that we're participating in is much different, so we need a different language. How are we supposed to pray? And I find it incredibly, incredibly beautiful and ironic that Jesus begins that template with our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But our Father is the very first line. And the disciples have heard these stories. So as we pray, as we approach God in prayer, from the very beginning, we're supposed to picture that ridiculous father running towards us. 
that ridiculous, beautiful, bounding father coming towards us. That's the father that we're supposed to picture when we pray, not a lifeguard with a long gray beard holding a lightning bolt. It's a beautiful, gorgeous, run-towards-us sort of a God. And as we start into our, our prayer, that's who we're supposed to be picturing. Because if we pray to a God we believe is going to hurt us, we're going to turn into very cynical people. What we pray trickles down into our lives. If we pray to this God that we think is literally going to smote us, what kind of people do you think we're going to be? But if we pray to the type of God who runs towards us without even a word coming out of our mouths, it throws this robe on us, puts the best ring and the best sandals on our feet, then we're going to be really happy people. We're going to be transparent people. We're going to be the type of people that in prayer, I trust this God like I trust that Father. There's a really cynical way we can go, and then there's a really, really joyous, awesome, happy way we can go. And all too often, we, we move towards the cynical. As we're talking about faith this summer, there's also the aspect of faith that like, it's, it's something that can be lost. And I've seen it happen dozens and dozens of times. People lose their faith, and I'm... I'm not 100%, but I know that most of that has to do with this cynical version of God. Because if you believe in that cynical version of God, there's only so much you can hold on to. Here's the question that unravels our faith 99.9% .9 of the time. And a question that, like, if we try and answer, it's going to stump us. And that's, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is my mom sick? Why did I lose my uncle. This is a good person. Why do terrible things keep happening to them? And I think in this issue of faith, that's just a terrible question. It's an awful question. Faith, if we let it do its job, whispers a different question in our ear. And this question is so good in our prayer lives, it's going to be so awesome if we include this. Faith whispers, is beauty intentional? In other words, is, is good on purpose? Because if good is on purpose, then there's so much more to pray for. There's so much more power in that. There's so much more beauty in the world because we realize there's a God who made this stuff on purpose. And yes, there are going to be terrible, terrible times that come, but the more important thing to focus on is the fact that beauty is intentional and that someone meant for that to happen. The goodness that's in your life the goodness that you see in other people, that was made on purpose. I really do not believe that the terrible stuff that comes into our life is on purpose. But I think that the good and the intention in that is wonderful. Uh, when I was in high school, I had this mentor. His name was Dieter Zander. It's a very fun German name uh, to say. Uh, Dieter was a worship leader. Uh, at my dad's church, and before that, he was on staff at this church called Willow Creek, and he, like this massive behemoth of a church. It looks like a, a shopping mall times four. Uh, and he was their, their young adults pastor there and just kind of had this long career in the church. His sons played in a band with me in high school, and I was over at the Xander's house probably every single weekend of both middle school and high school. It was just this warm home, and they would invite you in. And, uh, and we'd spend, like, the weekends just playing music in their garage, and then we would, like, literally pass out next to our instruments. We'd wake up, and we'd start playing again. And Dieter, being a musician, would kind of help us through and teach us how to play together. And uh, the man just had this incredible mark on my life. 
Uh, and when I was 18, uh, I had just woken up. And uh, I had just woken up, and I remember being like a little bit groggy. My dad walks in the room, which, what are you doing here, dad? Walks in the room, and he's like kind of holding back tears. And like, I've never seen that. that. That's the moment, like, you know when like, you're, like, the strongest person you know is about to cry, and you're like, oh, don't you lose it, because if you lose it, <laughs> I'm gone. And you're like, what is going on? And he comes in, and he says, hey, Josh, I need, to, uh, I need you to get dressed, and we're going to hop in the car. Um, Dieter had a stroke last night, and it doesn't look like he's going to make it. And it's the sort of news that you like just, what? No way. I just saw Dieter. Dieter's the guy that wakes up at 5 in the morning and goes on like a 10-mile run. He's like the healthiest person I know. He's in his mid-40s. How, what? And so we drove, and we drove to the hospital, and I see his sons. Here's some of my best friends, and they're just like wrecked. And they asked me, like, do you want to see him? I said, okay. And then we walked into the room, and there he was. And if you've ever experienced this before, where someone is literally being kept alive by a machine, it's just this like weird, awful tension in the room. And I'm standing there with uh, the two brothers, his sons, my brothers, really. And we're just sitting there in absolute silence, just staring at Dieter. The doctor said there's like a 75% chance he's not going to make it. So my dad calls together all of these pastors in the area and uh, our entire church that very night to pray for Dieter. I remember hundreds of people showed up. Our church didn't have hundreds of people. (laughs) Hundreds of people showed up. And I remember asking my dad, because I was really, really just, I was fighting with God. Because I didn't understand this. This didn't make any sense. Dieter's the best person I know. Why is this happening to him? Why is this happening to my friend's family? It's going to tear them apart. And I remember asking dad, I don't even understand the point. Because if God has a plan, then this plan's already in motion. And why would we even pray? Because it seems like this is part of his plan. And that's really messed up. And I'll never forget what my dad said to me, and it changed my life. It also changed the way I pray every day. He just looked at me, he's like, no, 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 Josh, that's, that's not the point. Prayer changes God's mind. And with that, I lost it. <laughs> and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and two days later, Dieter came out of that coma. And I don't know if that's because we prayed, but it certainly helped me. That's the kind of silly love of God. I want to go back to the prodigal uh, for one moment, and then we'll end. But I find it so funny um, that, that they include in this story sort of this moment of rehearsal. Right? You've ever been in that situation where you're going to have to go and have a difficult conversation with someone, and you have to replay it in your head like a thousand times before you're going to have that conversation? Or maybe it's like you're getting a, you want a promotion or a raise or something like that, and so you're, like, you're psyching yourself up, and you're, you know, father, I'm home? Like, you know, like he's going to bargain with his father for this job. He's rehearsing. He's, he's looking for the perfect words to change the father's mind, to take him back, Right? And I love that he's literally rehearsing the story on this long journey home. And he's walking back, and he keeps rehearsing it, keeps rehearsing it, keeps rehearsing it. But the story never includes him getting it out of his mouth before the father runs towards him, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, and puts sandals on his feet. There is no words. The father forgives him before he does anything. All he does is show up. And I think... 
how many times do we focus on the right words to say when we pray? Why is it that when I bow my head and I'm in front of people, all of a sudden I'm like some 17th century Englishman? Like, why am I using words that are bigger than I normally would, right? This son had practiced these lines and knew, like, I'm going to nail this. This, like, this is going to convince my father. All he had to do was show up. How often do we come with a perfectly prepared speech when God just wants us to show up? It's just like, just let me embrace you. Just let me hug you. Let me kiss you. Let me put a robe around you. Just let me be me and let you be you. You've all heard it. It's the people that pray and they go, Father, God, Jesus, Lord, Lord, God, Jesus, please, we just pray, God, 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 God. And I just wonder if God's up there going like, stop saying my name, <laughs> get to the point, right? I mean, if someone did that to you when you're going to the, Josh, if you could just, Josh, go to the store, Kobe, David, Josh, like, please, because we just need, we're going to need a lot of these, Josh, because we're throwing this Josh party, Josh, amen. You'd be like, what are you doing? In spaces like this, we have to cut the Christian lingo out. It's not helping anyone. In fact, it's a major deterrent. Like if you're coming into a church for the first time and people start rambling off these Christianese lingo things, it's, it's damaging. It hurts us. When we come into the presence of God, we can be us. We can be who we are all the way, and that's all God wants. Sometimes he's like, no, 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 I don't want you to talk right now. I just want you to experience my love for you. I want you to experience my embrace. I want you to understand that I love you more than your words. That I love you more than anything you bring to the table. And when we pray like that, crazy things are going to happen. Uh, we're going to take communion this morning. So front line can come down, and then row by row. You can take the hollow, you can dip it in the, um, the grape juice and uh, partaking communion. Also, if you have um, prayer requests, which is a huge thing as we talk about prayer, please fill those out. We'd love to be praying for you uh, about anything that's going on. So please fill those out, and you can drop them right here at the community table. Um, let me pray. And to, to end, I'm going to do a poem I wrote as sort of a riff on the Lord's Prayer um, in the context of the prodigal son and this, these parties that are being thrown. Um, so let's, let's bow our heads, and I'll read through this. Our Father in heaven, who runs towards us, how beautiful and set apart is your name. Your way, your truth, and your kingdom. May it invade our hearts and make this place look more like heaven. Give us what we need so that we might embrace the day. We ask for the type of forgiveness these parties are thrown for so that we might also throw the parties for those who have hurt us. Lead us away from the things we get trapped in. We pray for your peace, your shalom, in a turbulent, often violent world. May we become better than all of that because of you and through you. Amen.